0: Rahman <inaudible> <inaudible> Rahim. Greetings of peace, love, and light to all beings in the cosmos, wherever you may be. This is your brother Baraka Blue, and you are tuned in to Path and Present Podcast. This episode needs a little bit of an introduction because it's unique in that it happened in a live venue and it happened a few weeks ago in Seattle, Washington at Seattle Central College. We had an event entitled Intersectionality, Malcolm X, Islam, and Hip Hop. It was a wonderful, blessed event. Uh, it was a panel discussion between uh, some very special and beloved artists, speakers, community leaders. We had Osama Cannon, who is the founding director of Tetleaf Collective, a collective founded in the Bay Area, but now reaching uh, globally, really, and having uh, amazing effect, you know, serving people in a number of ways. Then we had artists, Aaliyah Sharif, Bay Area MC and activists. We had one below of Binary Star, represent Pontiac, Michigan. And last but not least, we had my brother and your brother, everybody's brother, Mr. Brother Ali from Rhyme Sayers crew. Shout out to Minneapolis. All these people who are each and every one of them very beloved to myself came together to discuss Malcolm, Islam, and Hip Hop. And it was a very fruitful discussion. It was an amazing, dynamic uh, panel. And I had the opportunity and the blessing of hosting and moderating that discussion. So this Podcast is the audio of that discussion. Once we had the conversation, I said this is the perfect thing for the podcast. And Seattle Central was generous enough to allow us to use it. Um, so, shout out to Seattle Central. Shout out to Sam chestnow for making this event happen. And shout out to you for supporting Path and Present Podcast. Continue to support us with your love, your light, your dua. It is now on iTunes, so you can subscribe and get all past and future podcasts that we do. We got some really dope ones coming up in the next few months. And as always, keep us in your prayers and always walk the path of light. If you have the ability to support the podcast monetarily, you can always give through PayPal to connect at barcablue.com. And keep sending us your dua, your prayers, your positivity and your light. And we shall do the same to you. Alright, everybody. This is Baraka Blue, and you're tuned in to Path and Present One Love. Alaikum, greetings and peace. Bismillah. Good morning, everybody. I know it's early. Alhamdulillah. We uh, had a late night as well, all of us, so uh, inshallah we'll all be awake in this dream. We're here to talk about uh, Malcolm X. Malcolm X is someone who, as a recent uh, biography stated, he lived a life of reinvention. and In speaking about Malcolm X to my dear friend Brother Ali, he mentioned that Malcolm is interesting in that everyone projects their ideal onto Malcolm. So whatever they would like to be or like to see, they see in Malcolm. And in many ways, great people are like that. So for the leftists, revolutionaries, that's what he is. For the pan-Africanists, that's what he is for the Muslims that's what he is and even within Muslims uh, for the Salafis he's a Salafi and for the Sufis he's a saint right? Everyone sees their ideal self in him and many historians of Malcolm have separated his life into four periods so you have Malcolm Little you have Detroit Red, you have Malcolm X, and then finally you have Al-Hajj, Malik Shabazz. And one thing that's amazing about Malcolm is that he was never afraid to change. And I think that's something that, it's a quality that few people possess. Because we become invested in our identity. We become invested in who we are perceived to be, and even something like uh, political activism or religious conversion there's a statistic that people that convert to another religion it almost exclusively happens between the ages of 15 and 25 because after that you've kind of solidified and it's very rare for people to change. Uh, right they say you can't teach an old dog new tricks so we become kind of solidified but Malcolm defied that and i think he defied that because of his sincerity that whatever he believed and whatever his convictions were he was going to live them completely and 100% and if he was to find something that challenged his convictions he was going to fearlessly confront that head on and look it in its eyes um, just a, a personal anecdote um, we're talking about Malcolm X and hip-hop and Islam and I can probably speak for everyone on this panel in that hip-hop uh, was central to my journey and it was kind of my door to Malcolm in fact I tell people the first time I heard the word Allah was in a Wu-Tang song and When I was in high school, 13 or 14, I think I was a sophomore, uh, my girlfriend at the time, she went to a very good school, a private school, and they were assigned the autobiography of Malcolm X. And I saw that book on her desk, and I asked her, right, right when I saw it, I knew the name and I knew the face, and the first initial feeling I had was embarrassment that I didn't really know who that was. And the reason I was embarrassed is because all my heroes, he was their hero. And I had seen his face and his name. And I had heard his voice. And I had seen the X hats. And all of that was through hip-hop, right? So I heard his voice on the records. And I saw his face in the Public Enemy videos. And I I heard his name in song after song. And when I read that book, what was so beautiful about the book is that he shared his journey. And he didn't shy away. And Malcolm is someone who has said, there's no shame in being a criminal or being down and out. But the shame is in staying that way. He wasn't afraid to be authentic with his entire journey. And so I hope to invite our panelists to uh, follow in his footsteps in that way and share the way that his journey has affected theirs. Um, As an artist, I've had the blessing of traveling all over the world. I've been to uh, many countries. And in every place, people know who Malcolm is. And they've read his autobiography, translated into their language. And I wonder what it is about this life, I'm reflecting, what is, what is it about his life that is so influential uh, and affects so many other lives? So the first question that I want to pose to our distinguished panel is, how has your autobiography, if you to reflect on your own journey, been influenced? by the autobiography and the journey of Malcolm X? And what was the way that you were exposed to it? And how has it stayed with you? has that journey, his life, changed as you change and as you grow? And I guess I'll pose it first to Imam Osama Ken. Good
1: morning, everybody. Greetings of peace. Um, I think that Malcolm was one of many iconic personalities that shaped my identity as a child. Um, Some of my earliest memories were listening to Elder Fitzgerald with my father and asking him who that was singing. And then these beautiful uh, names and faces like Miles Davis and Marcus Garvey and Bob Marley, and all of these different, Billy Holiday, these names start to pop up. And as someone who comes from mixed ethnicity, my father being black and Native American, my mother being white, uh, music and, uh, and what surrounds music in terms of culture was central to my identity formation as a young person. My older brother, who was three and a half years older than me, which basically meant I got through high school um, and other people did the fighting. Um, I kind of was on his coattails my whole life because of how how much older than me, he was so I basically got to just ride through life and be like the shorty hanging around with the OGs and kind of you know that means the young guy hanging out with the older people for, for some <laughs> translation. Um, yeah, and so my older brother graduates in I think '91, and then I'm in middle school. And in that period, for those of you who are kind of familiar with the timeline of of what was happening with music and, and even film. Uh, What was actually popular at that time was public enemy, it was, uh, you know, uh, conscious hip-hop. It it almost to the degree that we didn't even need to call it that, because it was just conscious. And there was so much beautiful resistance and beautiful um, expression and expression of rage and expression of self in in that period. And so I remember literally the Shell station, the gas station, across the street, up the street from my house, having African medallions and X hats for sale. in the gas station. Like that's what was actually there. Um, and so because my brother was part of that broader experience and he himself was a musician, um, he began to he got turned on to uh, the Nation of Islam through Chuck Lee, uh, the, the kind of the head of public enemy. And from there the relationship with the with the Marcus Garveys and the uh, and the other people began to solidify. I think Malcolm represents in our journey in that regard kind of the iconic figure figure where it all is synthesized. Um, I think it's very important to note that Malcolm represents, in in an interesting way, a hub in a sense, because there were a lot of really important people around him and in his life that made him who he was, not least of whom was his blessed wife, Betty Shabazz, um, who was undoubtedly the great woman behind that great man, who is often not mentioned uh, and is often not honored sufficiently, who struggled greatly during his life and struggled greatly after his death, and ultimately herself uh, you know, died in unfortunate circumstances. May she rest in peace. So, I think he represents kind of like the the convergence of all of it: the rage, um, the spirituality, uh, the unapologetic blackness, uh, this very profound masculinity that was not in any way uh, misogynistic or, or predatory, but this nobility. Um, and so, I think it kind of gave us something to look up to, something like, oh, I, you know. You know, I mean, I think many of us, uh, whether we're honest or not about this, we look to people and say, I want to be like that dude when I grow up. So I think that's kind of what Malcolm, how he influenced my, um, my upbringing. And it's interesting because there's so many important people, not only in the history, but also in my own experience, um, Malcolm, again, kind of embodies all of those different things. Uh, but He was not the only, but one of many very important people um, a point that, that I would make in closing is that something people often fail to mention is that to my, to my knowledge, from the time Malcolm was incarcerated in the Detroit Red Period until he married Betty Shabazz, I think some 12 years later, uh, if I'm not mistaken, he was celebrated. And that's part of the narrative that people will talk about is that in addition to speaking truth to power and the beautiful uh, oratory skills that he possessed and just the, just the shining black beauty that he carried. Uh, he also, uh, I believe, was someone who had a very serious commitment to personal piety. And that's a relative concept. I don't mean to, you know, I don't mean to cast that too broad of a net on anybody, but to say that he had a commitment, and I think that's important based off of what you said about not staying a criminal, because he was at one point a womanizer. He was at one point someone who was objectifying and disrespecting women. Um, and he ultimately comes to a place of personal commitment to piety to be able to stay celibate for twelve years until he was married. Um, so those are some of the things that like again, what is it that you about Malcolm that you want to be like? You know, inspiration to be someone who's upright and be to be someone who's trustworthy. So those are just some uh, pretty brief thoughts. Uh, I'll pose that same question to
0: you, uh one beloved to she, uh, what is Malcolm's life meant to your life?
2: I grew up in Pine Lake, Michigan, right outside of Detroit, Michigan. And you know, I grew up in a in a home. I grew up as a Christian. Got baptized when I was 10 years old. So you know, I grew up in a church and you know we learned like, uh, you know, the, the nation of Islam, they they believe the white man is the devil, you know, being part you know, just like so I stayed away from I heard about Malcolm X, but I didn't really know a lot about him. Uh, yeah, so I grew up in Pontiac, Michigan. I was captain of the basketball team, you know, I was out here. You know, I had girlfriends and thought I was a pimp, you know what I mean? And, uh, you know, a couple months after I graduated from high school, you know, I thought I was going to college, but a couple months after I graduated from high school, I went to prison, you know, for armed robbery. And uh yeah, it was uh, you know, I was 18 years old at that time. Uh, you know, a lot of my friends were either going to prison or they was going to the cemetery. So it was just a a wild period at that time. And uh, you know, it took a couple months for me to like even like realize what was going on because I was like, you know, still hiding or whatever, you know. And uh, <clears throat> yeah, I remember I started reading books. I started reading books. I was in jail, you know. So I started reading Donald Bowen's books, Black Girl Lost. Pimp you know, This, The Ghetto That, Crack Rock, you know, those
0: kind of books. Dophine, Iceberg Swim, Pimpin' Hoes and stuff.
2: And so this old guy myself, you know, he was like, yo, young blood, like, you already know these stories. Why you, why you, why you doing, why you regurgitating these stories again and again? You already know that stuff, you know what I mean? And like, for me, it was like a challenge. It was like, like, mama I reading books? Like, get off me, you know what I mean? But I was reading those kind of books and so I said to myself like yo, I'm gonna start i start reading fiction. I'm gonna start reading like so I started reading I read, you know, Booker T Washington, I read, you know, I didn't read fiction, I read it with Tom's Captain, you know what I mean? I read uh, Roots. And uh, you know, I had time. and this I was in I was in jail during the O J Simpson trial. So either everybody was watching OJ or you know, I was reading books. And um yeah, I read the autobiography from Malcolm X, and man, it just it blew my mind because, you know, like, I wasn't a Muslim at the time, you know what I mean, but uh, I read the autobiography for Malcolm X, and uh, I remember I called my stepfather because he adopted me when I was, you know, one, and so I had his last name, so I called my stepfather, I said, yo, I said, I just want to let you know I'm changing my last name to X. And he was like, he was like, oh, you gonna be like a Muslim? And I said, no, i would never be a Muslim. Man. I know better than that, man. I, was, I got baptized when I was 10 years old. I said, the reason I changed my name to X it has nothing to do with religion. Like, you know what I mean? Like, that, that's the effect that it had on me. And then, you know, a couple months later, I was a Muslim, you know what I mean? <laughs> um, but, but, you know, but what but the autobiography of Malcolm X, what it opened up to me and, and you know, what a lot of people felt to realize is that he said it in his own words. He told you what he was thinking and why he was thinking that way, you know. And uh, it was really, it was really honest. And so for me to be, you know, in the state that I was in, you know, and I, like I said, I got all these girls writing me and I'm reading these books and I'm, I'm in here alone for the first time I was in prison. But it was like. It's the first time I was away from home, I was away from my friends, I was away from peer pressure, I was away from my parents. So I would read whatever book I wanted to read and be like, man, this is what I think about it. There was no preacher or parents like, this is what he means, you know what I mean? And so I had like two years to like, pound that understanding and get my own understanding about what, what I was digesting. And so, uh, what I appreciate about the life and the, and the biography and the story of el Malik um, El Shabazz, Malcolm X, Detroit, Ray, all of those, you know, it's, it's, all, it's all a part of who he was, and so it, it allowed me to embrace every aspect of my being, you know what I mean? Because, it, you know, my path to Islam was was dirty, you know what I mean? I learned Islam from murderers and killers, people that the, the worst people on the earth, you know what I mean? But they were so sincere about purifying themselves, you know what I mean? And so it's it's totally different. You know, I go to prison and all my Christian family is like, I can't believe you did this. I can't. You know what I mean? But but you got people like, or Yo, whatever you need. Like, you know what I mean? Just really um, sincerely, you know, you got to hit rock bottom to really understand what it really means to, like, have mercy from the all-merciful. You know what I mean? Because sometimes you can do things that you can't even forgive yourself for. You know what I mean? That's right. But that's not your job because you ain't the forgiver. That's right. You know what I mean? can do things that people will never forgive you for, but if you sincerely, and that's what Malcolm X was, you know what I mean, he sincerely, you know, made those adjustments when it became clear to his mind, you know what I mean, and so, that's what I, you know, that's what I had a chance to do when I was in prison, I had a chance to be like, it's like, it's like, I got pulled out of the game and I was sitting on the sideline looking at my friends and looking at what I was doing, like, yo. This, this makes sense to me, you know what I mean? And so I embrace, I you know, I am Malcolm X. Not on that level of who he was, that's not what I mean. I'm talking about as far as aspiring to be a person that's committed to self mastery. And I, I could talk a long time
0: about it, so that's what it is. Peace, you know. Thank you. And I think that's beautiful, and I think that ties in with the fact that. Malcolm has always been kind of like the unofficial patron saint of hip-hop, and, and the champion of the oppressed, and the, the quote-unquote lower classes, the quote-unquote wretched of the earth. He was never like a middle-class hero. Um, and so he was always that hero for those, those people that went through that journey. So that's beautiful. I want to uh, pose the same question to our sister, the Sharif.
3: Uh, peace and blessings. Um, I would say Malcolm X, what he means to me. Well first, just my discovery of Malcolm X. I don't remember a time in my life where there was like no Malcolm. You know what I mean? Um, my family is just a, a history of the struggle. And I have a, a legacy of just a lot of activists. My grandmother was in SNCC. You know, so they did work with Jamil al May Allah have mercy on him and free him. Um, so we were always given Malcolm X as just our teacher, you know what I mean? Like, it took me until I got older and passed like the Spike Lee perception of Malcolm X because I was around, you know, our time and Malcolm X was like, here's the movie. Like, you guys don't even need the book, you know what I mean? And it took me to get older till I realized like, okay, you do need to read this book, and you do need to, to dig deeper into who Malcolm is, and it's not just one side of Malcolm. Like like you said, they put Malcolm's life in categories, but you can't leave out one side of Malcolm and embrace every other side. And Malcolm X himself said he will always, this is after he had to college and everything, um, he will always be Malcolm X, as long as the conditions that are existing still create that, you know, con- the the situation where he has to appear as Malcolm X, so a lot of people don't really know that he said that. But um, Malcolm X to me is just so sincere, you know what I mean? So sincere, so honest, and watching him, it, it helped me understand what I was going through in my different transitions as a Muslim. You know what I mean? Because Malcolm wasn't perfect, but Malcolm showed that even with the Nation of Islam, and what he learned from the nation and what he, you know, how he was inspired by Elijah, he learned that there was more to Islam. It's not a branch. It's not a section. It's not something that someone could make into a nation. Like, Islam is Islam. You know, and he grew past that. So that just showed me every every step from Detroit Red to where he, where he was when he passed away. He was a very honest and sincere person, and that's what he said he wanted to be remembered as and remembered all his mistakes. He wanted, you know, people to know he made these mistakes in sincerity. He didn't, you know, he wasn't just out here reckless. Like, he really, that was where his heart was with the Nation of Islam, with Detroit Red, with Malcolm X, Malcolm Little, and, you know, subhanAllah, he got to take Hajj and um, show us show us the difference as black people growing up being like, okay, you have the nation of Islam, it's such a heavy presence in America and you know, growing up black and Muslim, you're always asked, like, are you from the nation of Islam? Like, people automatically categorize that and Malcolm made that so clear and I feel like he was the best to do it. He was the best to step outside of that and say, no, this is what is right and this is what not only black people but all people need to acknowledge about Islam. like there's no racial difference as far as you know the white devil mentality and everything. He had to realize like there there aren't no white devils like that's we don't believe that you know any race has a superiority. so, just his whole transition, I, I feel like I try to embody everything Malcolm brings. I really think he, he is a great example. And just my last closing, I find that um, there's some things that I read about, um, quotes, hadith about the Prophet Muhammad peace be upon him. And I read things from Malcolm, and they say similar things. And he doesn't even know that. He wasn't even like trying to to imitate, or he wasn't studying Mal- um, Prophet Muhammad peace be upon him at the time. And, that just shows how sincere he
1: was as a
4: person, you know. Peace, everybody. Um, so I'm brother Ali. I'm Latino, and uh, my parents are European American. My family was really dysfunctional. Both of my parents died young. We moved from city to city. Um, we we were like apart half the time and together part of the time, especially when I was young. Like we were poor on welfare and we had government cheese and all that kind of stuff, and it was in places you know we were poor. And um, so you know you don't know you're poor when you're a kid. You just it's just normal to you. And we started when I started going to school is when I started realizing that something was wrong with me, both and being poor, but really just for looking the way that I look. and. Um, You know, I got, like, really, like, I I was in the Midwest, in little towns in the Midwest that would be like 95% white, a really small black community, and then like one Asian guy just to spice things up a little bit. And so, you know, it was, it was, um, you know, so the majority of people were white, and they were just intensely cruel to me. And maybe not all of them were, but the vocal ones were, and the ones that weren't, weren't saying anything to stand up for the kids, so to me, I was like, these people are, there's something very trouble with these people. And um, so my mom, who's this very pretty white lady, um, you know, God bless her, she figured, well, what we could do is we'll dye your hair blonde. And we'll get these glasses that have tint. And so you could just pass as like a regular white person. Like you could just be a regular white woman and it'll all be good. So um, we went to, um, she took me to, this very cheap salon where they dye your hair, where they cut, and, you know, haircuts are eight bucks, like that kind of place. And they try to dye my hair, but hair dye works with the the color that's already in your hair. And so since I don't have any, my hair my hair turned purple, like like Wiz Khalifa's hair, purple, which is not fly and it's not better than white hair. You know what I'm saying? It's like if you're trying to get if you're trying to like be invisible and just you know uh, going to the radar, like purple hair is not the way to do it either. So. Then she had to take me to an expensive place. And I remember there was a big argument between her and my father, because they didn't have money like that. And so she took me to this expensive place, and they finally dyed my hair blind. And I had this moment where they're drying my hair. Because the first time they're drying my hair with a towel, and they pull the towel off, and it's purple. And I'm just like, oh, like oh, man. I'm like, I want to then The second time they pulled it off, and it was blind. And um, so I remember that scene in, in, in the movie in, my, in the movie of Malcolm, where they pull it off, and he's getting his first home weight on. And they pulled it off, and he's like, ooh, look white, don't you? And, and, um, and I kind looked in the mirror, and I was like, it's strange, because like, this is not me. But maybe this version of me will be acceptable enough that I can just live and be a human being. And so then I learned that it wasn't enough to just do it once. you got to go back every, every couple weeks, because you get new growth. So like, if I wait too long, then like, my real self will grow in, and the secret will be out and then I'll be back to being like unacceptable to people again. And that was the most depressing time of my life. I was like six, seven years old at that time. There was an African-American woman that worked at the school. I don't even know what her name is, but she she started sitting with me every day at lunch, because I still was like, I didn't believe this, and, and, you know, and, and so I'm just like, man, it made it even worse. And my mother was trying to help me, but so I, I was sitting by myself every day, and she used to come and sit with me in between opening people's milk and telling them to sit down and be quiet all this kind of stuff um, most white schools know that they're not serving black children and so they hire a black person to keep them in line so most 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 schools now they have like a behavioral person so they basically say like we're not going to teach you anything about yourself none of the teachers are going to like share your outcome so like however these kids turn out it's not going to affect them. the teacher they're still going back to where they live so there's no real reason for them unless they're really committed to excellence or particularly loving people. So they, but then they hire somebody like, just, just don't act too stupid, you know what I'm saying? So they hire this black person to talk some black talk to you when there's a problem and calm you down. So then, at that time, it was this lunch lady. So in between doing that, she gave me the life game that I used to the day. She basically told me all of these things, and it was all through the perspective of black love and black is beautiful. Um, you know, She told me, these people have a problem. They don't love themselves, and so they need you to look down on. And as long as you don't play that role for them, then you'll be worthless to them, and you just go on being you. So the thing is, the key is, you can never believe what they're telling you about yourself. And that, uh, you know, keep your chest. She had these sayings. It was all in sayings. Keep your chest off your chin. Life's not a popularity contest. Fix your face. She used to say, like, don't cry, if you have to cry, go in in the bathroom and cry. But never let them see that they're affecting you. Always, you know. Uh, she didn't have the term, uh, like, swag, but she was saying, like, swag on them. Like, try to try to present yourself in a way that's powerful and, um, and fake it till you make it and all this kind of stuff. But it was very, very loving. And if she saw me getting angry, but she was like, don't get angry. Don't let them control you like that. So if she saw me getting angry, she would pull me to the side and literally, like, grab my face, fix your damn face, go in the bathroom and fix your face and come out here looking like you're somebody. And said, yes, ma'am. So I used to go in there and fix my face. <laughs> like, I remember standing there, like to fix my face? <laughs> like,
3: like, like, I don't think my face is broken. I'm like, I, so I'm sitting in the mirror, like, trying to figure out how
4: to fix my face. And especially after she would grab it like that, it felt like she was about to, you know, bust my lips or something. But she really loved me. And and um, after that, I started having all these beautiful experiences with uh, black people in general. And there's this thing where I don't know if it's just that there are more black people, uh, albinos in Africa, or it's just more visible or something. But there's this feeling that. People in the African diaspora have, when they see in our mind, they're like, oh that's ours. That that's that's from us. That you know. So literally anywhere in the world I am, if I see an African person, it's always they're always like, you know what I mean? Um, and so people took care of me. So I came to hip hop because I, I I saw like this was a way, this was like this music that explained all of the beauty and the excellence and the intelligence and the you know, just humanity, like real raw humanity of my friends. And I didn't see it on TV. I didn't see it anywhere. I didn't really see it in movies. Um, but this music is like this is it. This is why I love my friends, and I don't have to explain it to anybody because I can play rock him, and you can't deny that this is that this is excellent. So I, I fell in love with KRS One in particular, and KRS One came through Michigan. I lived in to Michigan too when I was young, um, and he came through and did a lecture tour, and the. Uh, Snippets from that lecture tour appear on his entertainment album. I was at one of those lectures. So uh, at that time, he, had, he and Nelson George released a book called Stop the Violence, Self Destruction, along with the songs where he got a big posse cut. Karen's one was, it was and is a community organizer, along with being an hip hop artist. So he released this book, and I went and bought it. And it was like a book for people my age, I'm 13 at this time. And it's like a, a poster on one side of each artist in the song. And then a little write-up. And in between, they got statistics and things like that. And this was the first book I ever got. So I brought it to the lecture, and, we, and he was speaking about Malcolm the whole time. And at the end, they had to question and answer thing. I stepped up to the mic, 12 years old. And by this time, I was going through this thing where, like, I tried to get black haircuts. And it was, like, just a really hot mess. Like, I had, like, yeah, it was, it was really funny. But, um, so I stepped up, and I'm like, hey, I read your book. I know every word you ever said when this is over can can I meet you like on the side of the stage and you sign it. He said never mind that, come on the stage. So he brought me on the stage, signed the book and in big letters he wrote, Unite Humanity, KRS1. And he said, Have you ever read the autobiography of Malcolm X? And I was like, You're holding the first book. <laughs> I've never read a book. And so he said, Read that book. Read the whole book and um, this was just the most honest person that I ever encountered. Um, and He's so real and so honest and so fearless that he gives you permission to do that. And he gives you permission to completely reimagine the world. At the same time, dealing with the world as it is and dealing with yourself as you are, but he also gives you permission to re-examine all of it and to not be caged by any of it. And um, he said, I'm here for freedom. And somebody asked him just off comment, an offhand comment at the end of the interview. Um, and he said, I'm willing to pay the price. And he said, well, what's the price of that? I'm getting chills just thinking of this. He said, he t- this is the end of the interview. They think the interview's over. He's like, I'm here to get free no matter what, whatever the price. And he said, well, what, what do you think the price is? And Malcolm starting to walk away and he turns around. He looks at him directly and I says, the price of freedom is death. And Malcolm, uh, because of that, and he says also, Islam is the religion that abolishes fear. And he was so uh, fearless even to die before dying. The Prophet Muhammad upon him says, the human being is sleeping and when they die, they wake up. And so the idea is to die before you die, to die from all of the veils and all of the lies and all of this stuff. So he, he, every, every uh, identity that gave him strength, as soon as it became a veil for him, he was willing to die. And ultimately, he died physical death. But that was just the last in a journey of death. That he was, that he was willing to go through. He died from the gangster self. Died from the, you know, from his younger self. Died from, died from uh, his aspirations to be a, a, a lawyer as a kid. Die, dying over and over and over again. Sometimes being killed. Sometimes just being reborn into something new. And that he ultimately proved that he lived his life as a martyr. And suicide is not the same as martyrdom. Suicide is false martyrdom. Martyr, what real martyrdom is? is when somebody is loyal enough to the truth that they're willing to literally give everything to pursue the truth, regardless of where that takes them and regardless of what the implications are. And so he followed the truth, fearlessly. And I think all of us, when we see that, and you mentioned that that everybody claims Malcolm, George Lincoln Rockwell was the head of the Nazi party at that time. And he's giving a speech and he says, uh, you know, Malcolm X, the, the Negro leader, uh, you know, he's particularly smart and particularly, he just praised him for about five minutes straight. And then he says, well, you know, his uh, grandfather is, in fact, a white man. And so he's, uh, he has more white blood. So even white supremacists claim Malcolm X. But um, really, like, he just, he just gives you permission. He shows you. And then also, just one more thing I really want to quickly add is that he was very fly. Like he wasn't, he wasn't just like, he wasn't a dork. Like he was very like, very fly. You know, he might have only owned a few suits or something like that. But he just always, it just looked good. The way he spoke was really fly. He was like in the moment at all times. And um, yeah, I'm doing that. That's true.
0: It was Ozzie Davis who said in the eulogy, he said, He was our own black shining prince who didn't hesitate to die because he loved us so. And so that, you know, exactly, it was the pursuit of truth, but it was also the pursuit of love. It was the true selfless giving of himself and all he had. So if we look at hip hop, And as we mentioned before, Malcolm becoming kind of this unofficial patron saint of hip-hop, and Islam being so central to the origins and the beginnings of hip-hop, and obviously that's changed. I actually read there was an article that was talking about Islamic references in early hip-hop and how common it was, and then it was like a chart that showed how it's gone down in recent years. But I was wondering, what was it about Malcolm that made him this? patron saint of hip-hop and not other people that are respected like MLK or Carvey or others. What what was it about Malcolm that made him the, the iconic figure of early hip-hop? Does anyone have any reflections on that? In um,
3: my opinion, I think Malcolm X brought that consciousness and that black militancy, militancy in general. And I feel like as far as the hip, hip-hop perspective, that was a time when people were waking up, you know, we've been, black people have been going through so much in America for 500 years, and he confronted that white supremacy, he, com- he made it plain, like he said. He made it plain, and I think that definitely translated to a lot of the artists who were doing the hip-hop, sampling Malcolm X, the language, um, he woke up that black consciousness and gave us a tool to defend ourselves, like with our words and with our ideas and with our perspectives in this country. And what was I was gonna say, uh, I think it was authenticity.
2: You know, because he didn't, because he was from the streets, because he. You know, he experienced certain things. He, he didn't have to come out and, like, sack his pants and be like, yo, I can relate to you, you know what I mean? Because he, because he, you know, the poor people know better than anybody what they need, you know what I mean? Like, people that's not free, they know better than anybody what it takes, you know what I mean? So I think him being in those different, you know, environments and experiencing the things that he did, and uh, Not only that, not only experiencing it, but, like, studying the dictionary. You know, being able to digest that experience and then um, communicate it into a way that people could understand and digest it, you know what I mean? And I think him being a thinker, he was appealing to the, you know, the, the, the thinking person, black, white, whatever your experience is, you know what I mean? And I think that's what he was penetrating, like, um, and that's what hip-hop is. That's, that's what graffiti is, it's unapologetic you walk around the corner and be like, whoa, where'd that come from, you know what I mean? And um, it's, you know, the intention is not to be rude, but the intention is to sh- shake it up, you know what I mean? And I think that's what his words like. A lot of people were startled with some of the things that he said, but uh, him being able to command the language the way that he did, you know what I mean? I, I think that you know, hip hop being the language of people and specifically youth, um, they thinking and they're they experiencing these things and, and they know better than anybody else, how to, you know, how to, how to speak out against that. And I think Malcolm has represented that, you know what I mean,
4: In every level. Um, yeah. To me, I think it's the youth thing. Like, um, Dr. King, very lovingly, and he was certainly not really older than Malcolm, but that felt like your grandfather, your loving grandfather, talking to you. Like, that feels like somebody from the older generation. Like, that's it's, it's very beautiful and very inspirational, but it feels like it feels like a, a time won't by almost. Whereas Malcolm being so present in the moment, like Malcolm represents youth, represents the best of youth. And to me, I feel like that's, that that link between hip-hop has so much to do with how present he was uh, in the
1: moment. The only thing oh. I would add, is not completely related to your question, is that. One of the things I find striking when I study Malcolm's, um, particularly radio and TV interviews, is that it was an anti-establishment conversation happening main stage. It wasn't happening in some silo or in some kind of like isolated like subculture. Like this is like main stage. It was like mainstream radio, mainstream TV, and he's up there defending a very challenging theology in a very very challenging socio historical position. He's defending it like in mainstream white America, and so I think part of what's interesting is when we see the birth of hip hop when it's born, and how chronologically Malcolm representing this this resistance in the kind of main stage of America, um, and also thinking about the iconic relationship between him and people like Muhammad Ali, and the fact that Muhammad Ali being this uh, this this, uh, this the champ, but also being this person who's on a similar path with Malcolm of kind of growing and finding Islam, and talking about that, and everyone's listening, to I have, I mean, I met a man from Jakarta, Indonesia, that told me when Muhammad Ali would be fighting, the streets of Jakarta would be empty because people were home watching the fight. Like, we forget about that. People weren't watching stuff on their iPhones. Like, you had to go sit in front of the television, listen to a radio, like, in a physical place that wasn't actually, you know what I mean? So these things were happening mainstream, and so I think that his influence, his popularity, uh, was such that he was accessible to the people who become also the main voices in hip hop because he wasn't he wasn't existing in a silent but it was happening in, in a main stage. And I think this kind of raises a number of questions around Muslim relevance today, which is a difficult conversation for Muslims to have, uh, but it is important in thinking about how are Muslims relevant to the mainstream conversation, whether they be uh, social, political, or otherwise. Thank you. Um,
0: yeah, and I would just kind of like switch gears, kind of vis a vis that. In that, if you think about obviously the situation for Muslims, for Islam, in relation to America, there's like the pre 9 11 and post 911 Like, those are very clear demarcations. And I think for those of us who are old enough to remember pre 9 11, the image of Islam and Muslims in the popular American psyche is Malcolm, is the black Muslims. And we were reflecting on the fact that now we're talked about the Islamic State, but it's interesting that the nation of Islam in America was an Islamic State. They had land, they had economy, they had media, they had uh, a paramilitary organization, like they had an amazing uh, infrastructure and a national organization. And it's interesting in that in the neighborhoods where they were active, Islam was seen as a positive and a beautiful thing because they directly addressed the issues of the community. right? And Ali mentioned to me that when, you know, some of the conversations when the FBI came and talked to Malcolm X off the record, and they were trying to co-opt him. And now you can hear these, these interviews, it's really fascinating. But they were like, we think maybe you can help us. He's like, help you. I'm doing more than, than you guys are doing. We're changing drug dealers, criminals, pimps, prostitutes, and we're ter- turning them into upstanding citizens. How exactly can I help you better than that? You know? So." Fast forward to the fact that we're in 2016, Um, America has been at war with the Muslim world since I was in high school, right? my entire adult life, and the kind of image in the popular American psyche of Islam is the violent militant terrorist of Arab descent. So my question is, what has that meant for Muslims in America? What has that meant for the legacy of Malcolm in America and internationally? And what ways do you think that this has changed the way he's remembered or that his legacy plays a part in America?
1: That's open for you. Yeah. Yes, uh, to kind of clarify, um, the nation was seem as a militant force historically and global Islam was seen as a benign force after 9/11, in an interesting way that has kind of shifted to where the nation is seen as an indigenous almost benign element and then global foreign Islam is seen now as the the, the malignant violent Um, I mean part of that has to do with the framing of the media and the kind of the the machine but the other thing that's really important to note is that you you refer to the nation as an Islamic State um, and even in their quote-unquote paramilitary uh, uh, element, they did not carry weapons, nor did they have any type of offensive violence whatsoever. They were not people who were going out beating people up, let alone blowing up buses. Well, except right. they that each other and they were coming. No, I know what I'm saying is that they were not people who were, they weren't known, they were known to the, the way that they patrolled and the way that they held and even till today, the way that the old security is not through weapons, it's through formation, and it's through, it's through a very different kind of framing. So uh, the, the resistance wasn't seen as one that was going to be committing violence against innocent people. It was, a, you know what I'm saying, it was a very different kind of framing. But I think that the thing, it's also important to note that many, many people in America, Muslims, are, are, are not exempt from this failed to realize that there was a shift in authority in American Islam. And Dr. Sherman Jackson writes about this in a book called Islam and the Black American, which is a very important read. um, That before the mass immigration of Muslims from the Muslim majority world, before 64 65, which is interestingly right when Malcolm was taken, the the authority in American quote unquote Islam, and those quotes are around the idea of proto Islam or pseudo Islam, uh, some would say heterodox movements that were not necessarily theologically uh, compliant in terms of their orthodoxy, as it were. So, when we say Islam, that's for the clarification uh, for, for the people interested in Muslim theology. But the authority of Islam in America, Latin, was with black people. And there, because of that, the nemesis of, of Islam in America was white supremacy. But if you take 64 65, the Asiatic Bar Zone, the National Origins Act and repealed, and Muslims. Immigrate and mass of the Muslim majority world, uh, the, the establishment of American Muslim uh, organizations under the auspices of immigrant Muslims, the shift in authority takes place, and the nemesis of immigrant Islam in America is not white supremacy. Uh, quite the contrary, it is the quote unquote West with all of the baggage of post colonial experience. And that's part of the conundrum that we find, and that it doesn't help the, the machine of empire building nations in the Muslim-majority world uh, you know, using, the, the, you know, using that language. Now, in the Muslim-majority world, while well, there's this huge growing body of Muslims in America. And then you have all of the stuff of classism and racism within the Muslim community that, that also contributes to there basically being 40 plus percent of American Muslims being black but not being seen as mainstream, not being referred to as mainstream, not being thought about as mainstream. And so there, there's a lot at play there. So when the media machine and all of this stuff of propaganda comes in, uh, that is a, Muslims are essentially uh, sitting, you know, we're, we're, it's an easy target, as it were. So Malcolm basically becomes this historical figure. And it's like Farrakhan said about uh, Dr. King, they didn't kill Dr. King because he had a dream. They killed Dr. King because he woke up. Mm-hmm. You know, even Dr. King, he, 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 you know, we talk about the I Have a Dream speech, what about his resistance to the war in Vietnam? What about his advocacy for the poor? And it's ironic that shortly thereafter he's also taken. Um, you know, so King wasn't seen as a—he wasn't a violent voice. He wasn't a violent force, but they killed him too. You know, so we have to remember that in that period, people were assassinated just because that was the MO. Uh, they have different ways of doing things now. Cube machines that they use and other stuff. I'll stop there if I get Anyone else like that? offer some question?
0: The question is that, in the popular American psyche, uh, Islam was black, pre-Hindal, and now it's, with the kind of geopolitical situation we have, uh, it's seen as a very different thing. Right? If you even use the terms that some people use, Islam was seen as kind of an indigenous American phenomenon in America, but now it's seen as a foreign thing, an alien thing. And so what does that mean, and what does that mean for Malcolm's legacy and for Muslims in America?
3: Well, definitely, like he said, Summer, it's the um, the media has such a big role in this. The fact that the Black community within our own community is marginalized does allow, you know, uh, then to hit us when we're at a weak point. You know what I mean? We're not at this united front, where we're not all coming together. But as far as the um, what does this mean for Malcolm and his legacy? I feel like Malcolm is untouchable in this. You know, Malcolm X, as far as what the government or the, his opposition have said, has been that for years, and it hasn't changed just because you know they're portraying Muslims as terrorists and you know blowing up things that is totally contradicting Islam. And that's not what we believe in. That's a, that's a sin. It's haram. You know, forbidden. But I think in all this. Malcolm X is someone that still remains as a guide for a lot of us. A lot of people who are still waking up, a lot of people who are finding themselves, a lot of people who are um, going through different phases and stages of Islam to get to that final point, but I definitely think that um, regarding to the Islamic State with the, um, the nation I personally would refer to it as a, you know, they have an Islamic state because it was just black militancy. Like, we knew who the black Muslims were, and their opposition knew who they targeted as the black militant terrorists in America. But I do think that um, Malcolm X, I, I just think he's, 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 he's untouchable to things like this, to, to, to this whole thing that they're staring at with, with the media. Feel like it doesn't hurt his legacy. It's gonna inspire people to want to know more about him, want to know more about you know Islam in general, want to know more about what we stand for and what we're really talking about. Because the numbers, I'm not sure if you guys have the numbers exact, but how many people convert to Islam? Each day? It's it's so crazy right now. It's over over a billion Muslims in the world. You know what I mean? So it's a beautiful thing. Like We have a um, belief in, in our religion which says that towards the end of time, like everyone will know about Islam. Everyone will know some some type of way what Islam is. And now that we see the media, it might not be the best light, but we see the media is bringing Islam into everybody's living room. Whether it be Fox News, CNN, like we all are seeing different different, um, lights of Islam, whether it be, um, whether it be Donald Trump saying something, you know, against the Muslims and, you know, against everybody, it's Donald Trump, but it inspires people, and I I don't think, I don't, they, they write us off as sheep and lamb But I think we're smarter than that, and I think, you know, we're just waiting for that real, I mean, it's already happening, people are, people are waking up, people are studying for themselves, people are just believing what they see on the media, especially when they know Muslims, you know, it's like, I grew up with Muslims, like, this isn't a part of Islam, and they're not Muslims. So, I, this could be an attempt to want to, you know, downplay Malcolm or anything. But I don't. I don't think this is going to hurt his legacy. I think this is going to. This is going to help and continue to inspire people.
4: So, some of the things that you know, since we brought up Dr. Sherman Jackson, um, you know, one of the things that we have spoken about this is that. The the thing that, that the, the statements of Islam, um, basically the two statements that, that you affirm when you enter Islam and become a Muslim. Um, one being the prophethood of, of Muhammad, the Prophet present, peace be upon him. But the, the first one being that the statement that in that, that there are no other gods with God, are, that the divinism is one, um, that people's creations and you know drawings and etchings and sculptings around you know trying to form imagery around the divine that those things are all you know creations of our own ego, and so they're false and so there's a theological implication there that like, we're trying to get to what is the real God like who is God what is God really what is the divine really about and it's a rejection of all like the false ideas of what God is and at the time and, and um, so that has, you know, theological implications, but it also has like real world, like on the ground implications, which is why Islam has always been seen, and rightfully so, as a as a theological system, as a life system, as a communal and individual way of being that challenges the status quo, because it challenges everything false, both in our hearts and also out in the world. And so, Dr. Sherman Jackson pointed out that at the time that the Prophet Muhammad, him. Said that these are two separate statements that he made, but I think really are connected. For the questions you asked, he said um, at the time he said that Mecca was rich because they had the Kaaba, which is built by Abraham. It was, you know, the first uh, site or physical space on earth that was built to go and worship the one God and represent the oneness of God, the oneness of the human family, the oneness of all of creation. Um, and they had put all the, allowed all the different people from that area to put their idols in there. And then they would all come and visit the idols. And they would worship them and they basically made, it was like tourist economy that they had. So when the Prophet Muhammad put the people upon him said, none of these things are God. None of these things that we create are God. There's no God that I can have in my house that she doesn't have in your house. There's no God for me that's not your God too. It's the, the divine is the creator and meaning and maker of all of this that was the most revolutionary thing that he could say and it challenged everything that they held onto, all the falsehood that they held onto that made their false reality feel strong and powerful to them. And over time, you know, now if you walk up to somebody and you say, you know all these God's people are talking about this all just one God. Like nobody's head explodes on that. Like pretty much that's, most enlightened people in the world have come to that conclusion that all gods are the same God, that this is one God. But so, what Dr. Jackson and you brought this to my to my attention. What Dr. Jackson said is, did that phrase become less uh, revolutionary or radical, or is it that we're just not identifying the uh, the idols of our time, and the idols of our time, obviously, like we are all, all people that that uh, suffer from oppression. No, is. Um, White supremacy, anti blackness uh, capitalism, hyper-capitalism, greed, individualism, all of the you know, reduction of ways of knowing and all this kind of stuff. So identifying those things, there's still like an inherent um, uh, understanding or just inkling within for people of power that like my worldly power is being challenged by this. That this idea and these the way that these people live their life is, a, is a, just a challenge to my everything I'm holding on to. Um, The other thing that I just want to mention that Dr. Jackson writes is that when the Prophet Muhammad peace be upon him said that, um, there was only so much that the people in power could do because he had a clan, because he was part of a a family, like a like a like a uh, tribal order called Bani Hashem, that they had some power, they had some influence. And just because he was their kin, they they wouldn't let the people just beat him up too bad. They would, have to do, they would have to harm him in other ways, but they would protect him because he was one of their own. And uh, Dr. Jackson points out that the Benny Hashem in America is the black man and woman in America because under, inherently they know that like these people are, their existence is tied as part and parcel to our liberation. And it's interesting that, you know, these armed people have been doing all of these uh, protests and like demonstrations at mosques where they go to a mosque, you know, like a bunch of like fat white guys with guns go to a mosque and they stand outside and they're like, no Islam and no Sharia law and all this stuff. And most of the time the Muslims are just like, oh God, just go to the car. Like I don't even like I don't even like coming to this place very much and now I gotta deal with this. And so they did that in Texas though, recently. And I don't know I don't think they knew where they were going. Like it seems like they just like typed in yeah, Google or something. Yeah. Uh, mosque Mohammed and they ended up going to Muhammad's mosque, number something, in Texas, which is the Nation of Islam mosque. The 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 uh, a new incarnation of the Black Panther Party also showed up with their guns. This is an atheist organization, but they're black. They also showed up with their with their guns, and they stood there as well. Like, okay, you're going to stand on that side with your guns. We're standing on our side with our guns too. And like, we don't we don't might not necessarily share these people in God, but they're black and we're black, and so you show, you know, your guns and we also have guns, too. And those people say, oh, hell, damn it, and they just went home. Ah! (laughs) They weren't expecting that. And so, um, you know, there's still, it's still alive, you know what I mean? I think it's still very much alive. And um, one of the things that I've noticed really quickly is that I'm from Minneapolis, uh, where the Black Lives Matter movement, run by a, a group of young black women in their 20s, uh, African-American and Somali, shut down a police station for 18 days. They occupied a police station. So white supremacists showed up one night. Me and my wife were about to go over there with the kids and my wife said it's dark. Um, and I'm gonna take the kids over there. I'm like, oh baby, you're tripping. let's just go. We're headed out to Chicago. I said, let's just go over there. And she was like, no, it's dark. And I was like, that's cool, it's a family vibe over there. You know, They occupied a police station and shut it down. They had stages, they had bonfires, they're cooking, they got barbecues, the whole community is out there. And I'm like, no, this is good, let's just go. And she said, listen, I don't feel right, and I'm not taking us over there right now. I can't drive. She drives. So I'm like, okay, cool, I get you know. That night some white supremacists showed up and shot five people. And they stayed there for 18 days. And when they when the when they finally rolled in, they thought that the snow would come in Minnesota and shut it all down. And when they tried to do when the snow came, the people just brought out more fire and they brought out, and they brought out more tents and people brought them gloves and coats and, and you know, even uh, white people from the community are coming by and giving them coats and hand warmers and scarves and things like that. They stayed there for 18 days until one night in the middle of the night they came through with bulldozers and they just destroyed everything. And then they built an enormous wall and fence in front of the police station in the hood. This is the neighborhood that I grew up in. A big wall. And so I sat there with these young sisters, and it's like it's African American and Somali sisters, and I'm like, man, you bad me. Not only did you shut down a police station, but look how terrified they are of you now. You know what I mean? Um, and so that's I'm witnessing. I'm a witness that that's still alive. I'm a witness that these young uh, Somali sisters and that these young Black women um, are still banging on the system. And that the people that are really in power are still very much aware of that.
1: I, I wanted to name two things because the fact that it's still alive is because it's a survivalist, it's a survival truth. But I think it's really important to name something. And those of you who are inter- interested in Islam as an academic study, is, or those of you who are living Islam, or those of you who are just observing Islam as a friend or ally or a community member of Muslims, it's important to note that the same ideological roots of ISIS and their their like, when that ideology has been taught to black American Muslims historically, one of the most problematic things that it has resulted in is black American Muslims disavowing themselves of their historical roots and experience in the name of Islamic orthodoxy. And because of that, it is one of the things eating away at the fabric of this truth being alive, where black people in America are being told that it's not about your, this beautiful, painful experience of you being here, being brought here, stolen from your motherland, having your religion taken away from you. It's not about that. That same theological truth that you talked about, instead of being presented as a resistance to white supremacy and to oppression of your people, it's stripped of that and just taught as religious orthodoxy. And because of that, the further you get away from your blackness and the further you get away from your Americanness, the better you are and more sincere you are as a Muslim. Yeah. It's important for us to note that. Because otherwise, we would just be kind of dancing around the cancer that is eating away at that healthy body that you're referring to. The second thing is there's very real on the ground implications of. Muslims coming from abroad, and as cliche as it sounds, my wife's an Arab immigrant, so as cliche as that sounds, people who are like, oh, he's anti-immigrant. You know, I got a black friend, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> um, just to be clear that I'm not like somehow, you know, whatever. But when Muslims come from abroad with that same cancerous misunderstanding of Islam, and I want to repeat that it has the same ideological roots as ISIS and their like, when they come to America and perpetuate those sicknesses, it leads to the, the phenomenon of, for example, where we hail from 80 to 90 percent of the liquor stores in the city of Oakland being owned by Arab Muslims. Mm-hmm. What the implications of that are on the ground? And I'll tell you a true story in close. There's a brother named Hook Mitchell, you can look him up online, legend in basketball. Jason K. paid. other people tell you, he was better than them growing up. Brother could jump over someone on a 10-speed and still slam dunk. He got amazing, amazing, uh, you know about him. I'm sure. You know, when you look him up, brother Mashallah, uh, he got wins. Like, Anyways, Bud became Muslim while he was incarcerated. He never made the NBA because of some struggles that he went through. Uh, when he was incarcerated, he became a Muslim. Came out and he was playing at Climates High, which is what we call the lower bottom of the West Oakland. I mean, is West Oakland. And a group of us went to support him. And when the when the when the alumni played the varsity City team. And it was a group of Muslims, uh, some of whom were black. Uh, there was the likes of me who were kind of ambiguous. And then another brother who was light-skinned, and one white convert. And we were the only non-black people in the whole gym. I mean, that group, not that I was not black, but this group of people. And so people were kind of looking at us, and some people had goofies on, and they're looking kind of red. And as we're walking out, people were kind of looking at us like trying to place us. Hook, who was the star of the show, came to, to have coffee with us afterward. First thing he said to me, this is the truth. He walked up. He goes, "Man, you guys left the auditorium. Everyone was asking me if y'all was with the Nation, if y'all was the liquor store people. <laughs> no, but this is a very real thing. That there was a point when, if you were a Muslim in the hood, you were that advocate of justice. You were that person who was walking the woman across the street with the groceries. You were that person who was resisting police brutality. But when you have so-called Muslims uh, with liquor stores in these neighborhoods, it shifts the whole pattern." And it's just how people perceive Islam. So these are some of the things that are eating away at Muslims' bini Hajj in America. And they have to be talked about. They need to be dealt with in a a solution-oriented way, but nonetheless, they need to first be named if they're ever going to be taped. So I just thought it was important to kind of name that.
2: So uh, what I wanted to uh, contribute to the the question, uh, as far as uh, Malcolm's uh, legacy, um, I believe that uh, his, his life, in the way that it's documented, is, is just a permanent it's a permanent reference. You know, um, I don't want to compare it to, to the son of the prophet, so it's long, but it's, his life is documented for everybody that, wherever where you come from, you can see it, you know what I mean? The beautiful thing about Malcolm X is that his, his life is documented in his own words movies, hip-hop, some of the people that he hung out with, you know what I mean? I mean, you know, a lot of people forget that Michael X was a, was a real close friend, or should I say, Detroit Red was a real close friend with Red Fox, who at that time, you know, he wasn't just a black comedian, but you, you gotta understand the politics of black cinema, black theater, black comedy, black entertainment, And so for for Detroit Red to be rolling with uh, Red Fox at that time, who was also going through his own, you know, political transformation, you know what I mean? I'm pretty sure y'all are familiar with Dave Chappelle and like how some people use comedy or hip hop to, you know, a lot of of people during that time was doing that. And um, these are some of the people that Malcolm was exposed to, and uh, so his legacy it's not just it's not just a, a part. You know, you people finding about Malcolm X through hip hop, or through Muhammad Ali, or through this one or through that door. And so, because he's a reference um, that you can't erase, you 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 can never really say like, oh, you know, black people are this, or black Muslims don't exist, or people who go to prison and come out are like this, because he's a he he's one of those, stop what you're doing because I'm about to ruin the image and the style that you used to, kind of things, you know what I mean? And so, uh, he traveled, you know, I, I live in Egypt, I moved to Egypt in 2007, and you know, I, I live close to the Citadel, and people say, that's the master that Malcolm X went to in the movie. Like, that's the impact that he has all over the world, you know what I mean? Somebody knows something about Malcolm X. So I just wanted to, to just kind of point out, like, when we do try to, you know, when they try to like write Black Muslims out of the history books and turn it into a foreign invader? That's how I understood the question. Um, you can't do that because Malcolm X is permanently a part of the conversation. Even if you don't know, somebody else knows. Somebody else can be like, no, I, you know, so you can never really forget about it. A lot of my elders, a lot of my teachers come from the Nation of Islam. So even though I, I never was directly a part of it like that, but the point is, a lot of his students, a lot of his followers, a lot of people that looked up to him and learned from him and you know, studied and learned about him. You know, we not only continue to, you know, study and learn and be inspired by his, his life and his legacy, but it causes us to put it in our own, like, and that's that's how it lives. So that, that's why you can never erase the legacy of Malcolm X because it lives in our, it lives with people, it lives in our in our practical lives. It's in our music. It's in our it, It's on our T-shirts. How you, how you gonna forget that? You know what I mean? Somebody's gonna. You know what I mean? Somebody's gonna come with a Hiller design, and it's gonna be a new Malcolm X shirt, socks. You know that kind of thing. So I just wanted to contribute that. Just so. right. real quick,
3: I, I just want to bring the point to as far as the the fact that has been brought up as far as um, Black Muslims are seen to just kind of erase the culture and just embrace the the Orthodox Islam. I just wanna, you know, let it be known Malcolm X did go back to Africa, which is something really important for us to see now in the future because he didn't keep his legacy in America. You know, he expanded to Africa, he helped the people out there, you know, he, he traveled around the world, so he definitely was encouraging us to find our roots, not just American history because he said slavery ruined American history. Like we were fine up until you know these boats came named Jesus and all this other stuff and came and took us from the middle passage to being enslaved or as they say prisoners of war in this country to different forms of resistance. And Malcolm X brought so much resistance. It reflects in hip hop and it reflect. We have. See, the thing is, with the slave, slavery, enslavement, people always want to make it seem like we was just laid in the water, like, happy, you know what I'm saying? Like, we wasn't happy about that. There was so many forms of resistance from Harriet Tubman and Nat Turner that you could name a whole line of, of soldiers from that time period, and then that sparked the new era, the whole civil rights, you know? We had to go through that. Then we have to deal with this post-civil rights, you know? We have to deal with neo-colonialism, and there was always a voice for us, you know, even before Malcolm X, expressing that resistance and really reclaiming our narrative and letting us know as black Americans in this country, he said, we were captured. He was like, we are in America, but we are not American. And he didn't mean that in any disrespect to, you know, American society or people. He was just going back to those roots and saying, you know what, how did black people get in this country? In the uh, well, we were here before they took us. We, we we definitely come here. Let's make that straight. But as far as the enslavement, the, the the chains, the whips, you know, something even small. The side note, they hear black people say "cracker." They're like, "Oh, you're so racist." That's the equivalent to the N word. But I many people don't know a cracker is the 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 slave master. He was cracking with that whip. You know what I mean? It's so important to know our history, our knowledge, and that's why. You know, Malcolm X, he, he definitely made that effort, as well as other leaders, Marcus Garvey. I mean, it, it, it's a long line of this resistance. And when it got to Malcolm X, it's just so beautifully highlighted because we had the Nation of Islam offering that resistance. And we had Malcolm X, and, and, and if you see him in the nation, you'd be like, man, he's... He has it, you know what I'm saying? That swag, that delivery, everything. But the fact that he grew and he let us know like it's more than just being a black Muslim. We have culture, we have history, we have knowledge and we got to seek that, you know, so. One
0: thing that I was sitting with a, a scholar from Columbia who is researching the end of Malcolm X's life and he shows that Malcolm, obviously he traveled, he made multiple trips to the Middle East and Africa. And in fact, the reason why he became such a problem is because he was making the the struggles of black Americans a, not a civil rights struggle, but a human rights struggle. And his intention, and he was very vocal about this, was to bring that struggle to the United Nations in the same way that the anti-apartheid struggle South Africa became a global struggle. And you know, he was building with um, all the kind of like anti-colonial movements in Africa and the Middle East. But one thing that this scholar mentioned to me that was interesting, he said that different Muslim leaders in the Muslim world they courted Malcolm because they saw him as this powerful um, speaker and they wanted him kind of like on their side to align with them. And Malcolm was very wise, and he realized he wasn't just going to be someone's pawn, essentially. And he mentioned that Malcolm was in Egypt, and in in that age it was Nasser's Egypt, which is leftist, but pretty secular. And then he went to Saudi Arabia, which is very religious, pious, but very conservative. And so Malcolm, they were both trying to court him. Into their, into their organizations and what they were doing. And that Malcolm reported and wrote in his journal that he liked the leftist politics of Nasser, but he didn't like his secularism. And he liked the, the, the religiosity and the devotion and the spirituality that he found in, in Saudi Arabia, but he didn't like the conservatism. And that's one thing that for me, coming from an activist background, Was so powerful about Malcolm because I always had a a deep conviction in that there is an ultimate reality and that there is a source of uh, transcendent value and and justice. And in in many of the activist circles, you see a um, a kind of hostility actually towards spirituality. I mean, we're in in a place like Seattle, which is known for its activism. Um, A lot of people don't know that Bobby Seale, you know founder of the Panthers, he mentioned that when Malcolm was assassinated, he ran through the streets of Oakland screaming, and he said, in my mind, that was the moment the Panthers were formed. It was basically the assassination of Malcolm that forms the Panthers. And uh, what people don't know, a lot of people, is that uh, Seattle was the first chapter of the Black Panthers outside of Oakland. Yay. So shout out to the Seattle Panthers. <laughs> but. One of the things is, you see with Occupy, Black Lives Matter, and a lot of the activism of our age is that, unfortunately, a lot of these circles, there's a lot of splintering and just breakdown, and there's a real lack of unity. And it's ironic because so much of the spiritual path is about identifying the diseases of the soul, the disease of the heart, which cause breakdowns in human collectivities. So I just wanted to see if anyone had any reflection on this, the way that Malcolm offers a model of spiritual
4: activism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I think that that's an um, a, a, a aspect of Malcolm's life because of the way that, I mean, we talk about journalism, but I mean, Alex Haley was a journalist as well. And he certainly made choices about the way that he also presented Malcolm. And uh, Manny Merrill's book that's problematic in its own ways um, does a good job of at least pointing that out um, and, and one of the things that I think is so overlooked when people talk about Malcolm is the Nation of Islam. And uh, so often the Nation of Islam is presented as a, um, as a, as a, a, a shackles that were holding Malcolm back. Um, and then certainly the, the turmoil and differences and disagreement within uh, his departure um, at the end of his life and the, the, the way that his life was taken was, is really, that, that part is really played up almost in a way that makes us not realize um, how much of Malcolm's power and his ability to present with the authority that he did was based on the fact that he was part of a, a nationwide community of people that were not just an organization. These people actually lived their lives together. And the love that they had for one another was very, very real. And it, and it permeated every single aspect of who they were. Many people joined the Nation of Islam uh, because a relative was part of the Nation of Islam. But a lot of the, of the people that were brought into the nation are people who, when they said they were cleaning up drug addicts, they literally meant that somebody that they knew in their neighborhood had maybe been exposed to the needle or the pipe or the, something like that, and that they were strung out. And so they literally would say, I love you, and then you're about to kick these drugs. And people would say, like, What do you mean? And they would take a few brothers, would come and get people that they knew. They might be a relative, they might just be uh, Uncle Eddie who lives over, you know, uh, Junebug or somebody. And they would go get them, and they would put them in their house. And these three, you know, uh, uh, they would take shifts watching a person. And I mean, when you're getting off of, especially heroin, which was popular at that time, that people would become physically sick and they would use the bathroom on themselves and they would throw up and they would have shakes and they'd be cold and then they'd be nursed back you know, given the bean soup that the Muslims were known for, they would feed people and they literally would bring them in their home and as they start to get better and as they start to improve they literally were nourishing them back to health and that as these people started to get stronger they started to teach them that all of this love and this service we're offering you is based on the fact that you're not what this country says you are. We're not what they say we are. We have a history that existed before all of this, and God is not the slave master. Isn't God, and that you're not somehow connected to the devil, and that in fact it's is probably something to the, you know to the opposite of that. And as people started to grow, this is how that community was built, and people cooked for each other, and uh, people uh, watched each other's children the first uh, religious-based private school system in America was the Nation of Islam. Because the Honorable Elijah Muhammad's wife, Clara Muhammad, said, there's no way I'm going to send my children after all of this work that we're doing. This is in the 1930s. There's no way I'm sending my children to white people's schools because they're going to teach them to hate themselves and serve white people. Why would I do that to my children? And so the police came to her house. And said so we, we find the delinquent officers came to our house, and we find out that you have children in this house that aren't going to school. And this very slender, very petite, very dark-skinned, beautiful woman, Claire Muhammad, said, told this big white cop. Imam Barat Ali Muhammad told us this story. Allah had mercy on him. He says he remembers being a little kid, and his mom was not a big woman. She was a very small body but enormous heart, enormous faith, enormous courage. And this big uh, 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 irish looking white cop came to the door and said, We're going to take these children. And she said, The second you take my children, I'll be dead as this door. And she slammed her head on the door. And he said, The cop shook a little bit. And she said, Man, Get from in front of my house and don't we'll ever come back here. And she started to this day, from 1933 or 4 until now, there's still existing in America. The greatest one is in Atlanta. Clara Mohammed's is a school system that she had created. And so the nation, Malcolm was powerful, and Malcolm could do the things that he did and speak with the gravitas that he did, not only because of his own personal stuff, but because there was a real community of people living and loving each other. And not only did they have um, you know, this paramilitary thing, but they also had courts. And if they found out that you were beating your wife, or that you were cheating at your job, or cheating on your taxes, or doing anything that was less than admirable, uh, you, you would be brought before the community. They had a system of community accountability where they would say, you're acting other than yourself. This is how they said. they didn't say, you ain't nothing, you're low down dirt. Yeah, it wasn't Roy Povich or Jerry Springer or anything like that. They said, you're acting other than yourself. Your own self is a righteous Muslim. And they said, you're acting other than yourself right now. And so as a community, we're here to hold you to a higher standard now, sir. They always spoke to each other in every sentence. with a a statement of respect and a statement of endearment. Yes, ma'am, sister. Ma'am and sister in the same thing. I respect you and I love you. You're an authority to me and now you're also a a loved one to me. Yes, sir, brother. Yes, ma'am, sister. Wa'alaikum salam, beloved. How are you today? And when they search you, you feel like somebody loves you. They go, you go into a mosque and they search you down, they pat you and they're checking you out. How are you today, brother? Absolutely. Yes, sir. So happy to see you. Where are you from? Where are you from, brother? We're happy to see you. Never seen your big, bright, bright, shining face before. This is how they treat me. Never seen your big, bright, shining face before. Welcome. Welcome. This is just to make sure we're all safe inside here. All right, brother, be well. If you need anything, let us know. And so this is how they live. And the, the number one uh, punishment in the nation of Islam, if you broke a law, was that you couldn't come to the mosque. Now, think of, like, what, that's a punishment to people. So think about, remember, most of us remember the, mas- the mosque we grew up in, the churches we grew up in. We were trying to, like, fake the flu, or we were trying to, like, sleep over a friend's house so, and then stay too late, and, like, oh, the, my phone battery died or something, trying to get out of going. But their punishment is, you, come, you can't come back around us for a, for a month, and people will be beside themselves. I can't be with my community a month, man, I've got to get it together. You know? um, and so this is, this is what gave Malcolm the ability. And this is what I feel, what you mentioned, a lot of our, a lot of our modern organizing is missing this, is missing the fact that the, these were, were individuals that were really just the, the face and the representative of the community that they serve. Malcolm isn't just Malcolm because Malcolm, the individual, is dole. Like Malcolm is who he is because of not only that whole legacy and lineage, but also because he was um, uh, animated by and empowered by a group of people that genuinely loved and, and lived their lives together. And in the one group picked into so much of the of the um, the way that Malcolm died has been used against modern organizing. And you specifically against the nation of Islam, I think we have to be really careful about not talking down about the nation of Islam. We talk to those of us who are are like, we're Orthodox Muslims and so we kind of talk down about the nation of Islam sometimes. We have to be careful about that because, um, and particularly I just want to mention something around uh, his departure from them and their assassination. I think a lot of people, a lot of times we miss in the telling of that story that the members of the Nation of Islam were there, not for any one individual. If there was any one individual, it was the fact that the al Elijah Muhammad gave them all permission to tell the white man the truth to his face, and to tell themselves the truth to their own hearts. So that community is what they felt was really gonna get us free, get them free. And the community was more important than anything else. So when Malcolm became a challenge to the community, it's not that they are they're like cultish, you know, there were, there were uh, a, a class of clergy that developed, and they, those individuals might have been opposing that break because they wanted to still be Captain so and so and minister so and so and drive a nice car and all that stuff. But the body of people, they didn't want to see a split in the family that was holding them together. And they saw Malcolm splitting and starting to, to you know, disavow the honorable Elijah Muhammad as, a, as a, the real reaction that they had to that. Was like your what you're doing could possibly break this family that we have, and so that was the, the the reaction, the visceral reaction that they had to him. It was it may have been driven by jealousy in a few people, but for the majority of the people, they're saying we are, you can't break this family up. And that uh, so many of the people that I, that raised me and that I, that we love, like you mentioned, the people that used to be in the nation, that was what really bonded them together. And that's a part of the story that I. Feel.
3: Please, I just want to add to that. Um, definitely, well, first and foremost, this autobiography is right in front of me. If anybody doesn't have it, it's how it looks. Go get it, Amazon, all that. Um, and you mentioned Alex Haley and how he was a journalist and he portrayed a certain way of the story to present Malcolm. A good person to really get an analysis on that about Alex Haley is Dick Gregory we actually got the scoop, we got the whole scoop with Alex Henry, um, because Dick Gregory was actually mentioned in this book, so he has something to say about the misquote that is in this book that Dick Gregory's got, kind of like, okay? Um, you mentioned another author, Manny Marvel, and it's very important to acknowledge that that was an attack on the legacy of Malcolm X, with him suggesting that he was the undercover brother in his book. I'm talking about the right author, right? So, you know, just to put that out there, that has been a a struggle in the community for a while because, you know, obviously a lot of people were appalled by that information and thought that that wasn't true about Malcolm X and another attack on another black leader and the legacy that they leave behind. I think in Islam, it's all about coexistence. As Muslims, we never, can say, you know, I'm not going to work with you because you're this or because you're that. You know what I mean? It's it's all about bringing that, that unit together. Even the Black Panthers, or the atheist group you are talking about that came and protected the masjid with the Black Muslims. They didn't agree they didn't believe in the same things, but it's that unity and that has been amongst the Muslim community for so long, and I believe it was after the World War One. it started just the whole fall of the Ottoman Empire, all kind of craziness and chaos that has caused all this division and all this um, hierarchy and all that, but we've had a history of coexistence with people, and still that's the motto, we can live with Jews, we can live with Christians, we can live with atheists. like. Our job is not to come in with activists. Our job isn't to come and say, you guys are all atheist activists. Like, we are aiming for the same goal, which is human rights. And at this time, with the Occupy movement, we all seen the 99% against the 1%. And despite that movement being dead or whatever you want to say, that's still the fact of the matter. we 99% out here. And they're the, they're, there's that 1%. And you know, we, we are an oppressed people and Malcolm brought attention to that and as an activist myself when I first was like getting into the world of activism and trying to balance Islam I was like I didn't know like I was like Islam is, I just have to you know pray and worship and dicker like I can't be out here with my fist up you know what I mean but the Quran justifies justice you know what I mean justice That is so important in Islam, like, even the quote, if you were to kill one man, it is as if you have killed the whole of humanity, like, we are all about justice. So I start balancing things that I was reading from the Quran and the knowledge that I was getting from Malcolm and kind of put that in the middle of what I'm even doing now with my activism, like, okay, this is, it just feels right with these, you know, these two sources and the Prophet Muhammad peace be upon him, also, you know, revolutionary in his own right. Um, just to touch a little bit on the nation. I feel like, you know, people in, from my communities, they don't necessarily, you know, refer to the nation as a, a chain for him or something that was holding him or anything. Because like we said, Malcolm Little, Detroit Red, like, it's all different stages in his life that we have to, you know, include in the same book. Can have different chapters about different different points in his life. But I do think it is important that we remember just what he said after leaving the nation and what facts and evidences were just brought up in the community um, between black Muslims, black Orthodox Muslims, because that's something that just I don't think can because Malcolm's you know, passed away and we see history differently, or not differently, but we, we see it from outside of the box they were living it, you know what I mean? Malcolm did have his problems with the nation, and he like we mentioned earlier, Islam, the main thing is and when you're worshipping a man as God, that tore him apart, that hurt him because, you know, he was a very sincere person, and that right there, when he started waking up, to just the roots now, the nation of Islam—they still. We talk about formation, okay? People respect organizing, and they are absolutely, you know, at the top of the game right now with with the organizational skills. Like the the whole terrorist situation and stuff. No, <laughs> you don't come to the nation of Islam with that, because that's not gonna pass. You know what I mean? So they're really—they still have that militant militant um, front, which is really good. Um, something that developed from that. Now Malcolm X, his father was a Garveyite and that's what the Black Panthers, they're, they're children of Malcolm and um, also inspired by Marcus Garvey. So, I definitely think that with that being you know, the recipe for um, the Black Panthers, you got the breakfast program. I mean, I don't know if you've all seen the recent little documentary they have on TV. Um, about the Black Panthers on PBS, I believe it is, but you know, it just really goes into the way they were helping their community and were attacked just because, like, you know, though in the time it was a thing to take out the political leaders, I mean, it's still happening in some way, shape, or form with our movements, with our protests, with our, I mean, I'm in Oakland, so we shut down freeways and all that, you know what I'm saying, but it's still, it's still that opposition that's who's going to come and try to infiltrate the community and infiltrate the organization so I just think Malcolm X is a lesson and we definitely have to 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 hear his words before he passed away and yes
2: I just wanted to uh, just contribute that Malcolm X is the voice you know, I don't want to reduce him to, to a 2 voice, but uh, he's the voice. You know, you heard, you, heard, you heard the word of resistance." You know, like, um, but putting that voice in context of when we first heard it, it was in the context of like, you can't be talking like that. That's what that's what Malcolm X is. He's the voice that doesn't need permission to speak. That's what hip-hop is. Nobody gave you permission to climb up there and paint that. Like, who? Whoa. No, who told you to wear your hair? Like, who, who, who told you to do your shoe? Like, you know what I mean? Like, And so the voice that doesn't need permission to say, I'm hungry. Stop beating me. Oh, when can, we, uh, when can we complain? You know what I mean? And so, like you said, in the context of him getting in mainstream, Television or whatever, and being that voice of I'ma say what I want to say, and I'm not afraid. He was a fearless voice. My X. It's not you know we we, hear, we we read quotes all the time. You hear voices all the time. Yo, that was a cool quote. But what's attached to the voice is action. You don't just think like oh, that was a cool quote. You be like yo, he meant that. Yo, he did that. You know what I mean? So the voice was authoritative. It was, an authori- it was a voice of authority. It was unapologetic. You know what I mean? There's a verse in the Quran that says if you hurl truth at the falsehood, it'll bash its brains out. That's the nature of the truth. Like, you could just put, a, put the truth on top of it, and it would just shatter the falsehood. You know what I mean? So intelligence is the ability to think and learn. Malcolm X spoke intelligently. Whether you agreed with him or not, he made you think, and you probably
3: learned something.
2: You might have been defiant or totally like, ah, i was just, just you know but, but he spoke in such a way where you, you couldn't really, you couldn't, you couldn't trick him, you couldn't rob him, you couldn't twist his words, you couldn't flip him, and that's what the voice is. It's, it's polished, it's authoritative, it's unapologetic, and it's real. And that's the inspiration of the voice. You know, don't just hear the name Malcolm X and be like, yo, I heard of that personality. I heard of that person. No, it's a voice that says what it means, means what it says, speaks on behalf of not only myself, but, but on behalf of people, you know what I mean, and justice, and truth, and, what, and, and sincerity, and authenticity. So I, I just wanted to add that. What what comes with the voice of Malcolm X? This is why this is why so many hip hop artists, including myself, sample his voice. Anybody can just hashtag and just quote something on, but but we we actually use his voice, and you'd be like, yo, what's because you know that what comes with that is a is a formula for action, revolution, sincerity, authenticity. So that's all that's what I want to contribute. You know, the voice. Of Malcolm X.
0: Um, both Islam and hip-hop are things, communities, which have a lot of stereotypes, negative stereotypes associated with them from people outside of those communities. And one of the stereotypes, negative stereotypes that they share is uh, misogyny, to kind of disrespect and the them. And so I wanted to see uh, your own reflections on that as well as what you think Malcolm might have said about that. Maybe first. <laughs> yeah, because
3: I just heard a couple things I was like yes,
0: yes, yes. <laughs> just about um, stereotypes of misogyny both within hip hop and within uh, Islam.
3: Okay, well definitely I'll start with Islam. There's no misogyny in Islam. It's just the community that practices whatever they example misogyny to be. Like, Islam has given me so much rights as a woman. I can't even begin to explain how once I learned those rights, and that whole, oh, Muslim women are oppressed. They have to wear a a rag on their head because, like, they have to veil themselves from the world. You know what I'm saying? Once I start really learning what I'm wearing hijab for and what like my my lord, my creator says about hijab, about rights as a woman in Islam, it it just was so empowering. So pause. Now going to hip hop. Okay. Where do I start? Lord. (laughs) Um, okay. We know it's it's a, it's a misogynistic culture, right? I mean, it's just so much history of it, and it's even worse now. There's um, so much I want to say about this. I'm just trying to, you know what I mean? I think in the, for now, future wise, like, there's been such a history of, of, of misogyny in hip hop and, hip-hop and from the roots of hip hop, that's it didn't start off misogynistic. They have a whole entire you know handbook about the 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 roots of the Zulu nation and where hip hop started and the four elements, you know, and the fifth one being having fun. Like there was no misogyny in the mix. But then you and you had you know you and I to you I you know. <laughs> You know, Queen Latifah coming out, rocking the African medallions, you know what I mean? Like, it was so empowering to women. But I do think, and I I think the brothers would give a better perspective. I'm going to just say this for now. I do think that we have to take a stand as women as well. Like, first of all, the rap videos with the booty shaking and the the half-naked women. Okay, that's one thing. But when it comes down to female artists... <coughs> oh my gosh, sorry. Icky, Azalea. Oh my god, this cough won't go away. Um... We have to take responsibility for our, our, contribu- our contribution to misogyny in this music world. Now, I'm not blaming the women. I'm definitely not blaming the women because it wasn't started by the women. You know what I mean? But when you do have women who are willing to use sex as a tool to sell, or to make it look a little prettier. You know what I mean? Like, we, we, we have to come together as women and like put it into all this. Video girls, video vixens, video half-naked, nothing. We don't need to, to entertain this anymore. and. Actually, I'm seeing more female MCs in this last like year or two than I've seen in years. And they're coming with it. They're not coming with that halfway, you know, dressed or like, I'm not gonna try to, they think I was about to start. But you know what I mean? So it is, I think females are starting to take more notice and taking that narrative back and controlling what we're being presented as. But as far as the men in hip hop,
2: it's a shame, and I would love to hear from your brothers. <laughs> yeah, you know, I just wanted to uh, please um, just give her a pause for just even being up there. You know what I mean? Because, um, she's not she's not a token, you know what I mean? But she's definitely a voice right now. You know what I mean? As we all are. so um, thank you for sharing that with us. Um, misogyny. Uh, Man, it's, it did not originate in hip-hop, you know what I mean? So we say, like, misogyny in hip-hop. It's like, yo, Wade, hip-hop is not microphones and the industry and rap videos. People, you know, if you got the most deaf album, he said this, you know what I mean? We are hip-hop. We, hip-hop is us. So, People are misogynistic, including women. We we live in the context of white supremacist, capitalistic, patriarchy, I spell hooks. But anyways, that's, right. that's the context of Allah. It's so deeply ingrained. So there is misogyny in hip-hop because there are people in the world who are who they've ingrained, they've internalized that. You know what I mean? So what, what Islam, what the Qur'an is, and what the MC is, because the Qur'an, a lot of people don't understand this, they, they think that the Qur'an is a book of poems. If you understand the Qur'an, the, the Qur'an in Arabic, you would be like, man, the whole book rhymes. It's, it's like harmony. It's like, it's like a, they thought Muhammad was a poet. People thought like Muhammad, like, you are trying 40 years old and you're a poet now, you're doing poetry. You know what I mean? And that's because that during that time, there was a lot of people that was like spit. Whack bars. <laughs> when, when the the evil powers that be had an army, Allah sent an army to battle them. Yes. When the when Pharaoh when they was when they had when magic was controlling people's mind, Allah sent Moses with magic to battle that. You know what I mean? Yeah. And when people had lies and propaganda, He sent MCs. He sent the word. He sent he, the, the Quran is like rhymes. It's I don't want to reduce it to that. You know, but getting back to Malcolm and getting back to misogyny, what the real MC does is he stands up, she stands up, they stand up to speak on behalf of truth, of the people, of the community. That's what an MC does. Anybody can rap. But an MC will say, like, oh, you ain't one man. I don't want man. I mean, I'm about to show you what that is. They will, they will find what it is, and then they will speak on it. They will speak the truth on it. And so that's what I wanted to point out. Massaging does exist not only in hip-hop but also in people, including my, including myself, is deeply ingrained. I'm always decolonizing and finding like little but, you know boogers and stuff like that. And you gotta constantly maintain, you know, um, so what I'm saying is that's what the MC is. That's what the person who's dedicated to truth and, and like I said, I'm speaking on MCs and we're talking about Malcolm because once again Malcolm was the voice. And then hip-hop has many different elements, but there's an element of hip-hop that's a voice, and that's the MC. That's Brother Ali, that's yourself. That's, hip-hop is not just rapping, like, yo, I'm rapping on the beat. That's why you hear us when people talking about James Brown. That's why you hear I'm talking about. So many people who came before us, because hip-hop and the elements of hip-hop that we now call bboy and MCing and all that, these elements, these traditions existed within our culture for thousands and thousands of years. So, me personally, how long you been in the game, well, I don't, I don't, I don't frame what I do in the context of the music industry. I don't frame what I do in the context of capitalism. the, the spoken word tradition is a part of our culture for thousands of years. So you could call it hip hop, but we've been doing this for thousands of years. We've been spitting the truth, speaking up against, protesting. Rapping, and one example of that is the Quran. It's a book of rhymes. It's like it's like Barack Obama, Jay Z, Tupac, spitting the illest social justice lyrics that you ever heard. That's what it really is. Though. You know what I mean? Like so, that's what hip hop is, in my opinion. You know what I mean? And and um, within our own system, within our own selves, we constantly struggle to rid ourselves of the of you know what I mean? Eye um, boogers, nose boogers, massage me, all those boogers. You know what I mean? So so, so that, that's what we do. We call each other out. We battle each other. We, we use our words. We use our art to... Some people got whack bars, you know, massage me, and all that kind of stuff. And then you got people that come out and show the beauty. You know what I mean? And, and the ugly, nasty, grimy stuff makes... Makes the beautiful stuff even more appreciated, and it makes the struggle even more beautiful and more real. You know what I mean? So I just, I could go on for a long time, but I just wanted to say that it, it does exist because it exists in people. Grief exists in people, but but we, we constantly study and research. You know, and you hear somebody spit something, you be like, man, what's that? Like yeah, it will drop thirty, it will drop fifty-four names of African countries, and you be like, oh, I gotta find out what that is. You know what I mean? Because it appeals to your intellect. People people really want to know. They want to know. Nobody wants to be, nobody wants to not know. Everybody our arrogance would be like, ah I want to know, but you really want to know. And so hip hop, anyway, when I'm talking about hip hop, remember I'm not talking about the music industry, but I'm talking about the culture of people that allow us to authentically express ourselves. That's what hip hop is. Whether you MC, whether you're just doing it with your fashion, you're doing it with your hair, you're doing it spending it with your money, like there's many ways to express yourself, you know what I mean and hip hop is the authentic expression of yourself, and so when you see something misogyny, you see whatever speak out against it, you you do something about it, you know, me me personally I write about it we we find different ways to battle these diseases and that's just one of them, you know what I mean but that's, that's not a hip hop thing, that's a people thing that's a I learned that from my father thing that's a, I learned that out of the Bible. I see Donald Trump, talking, we ain't letting women take the mic from us, you know what I mean? Like, that's that's deeply ingrained in people, you know what I mean? Uh, including all of us, you know what I mean? So we gotta constantly be looking for that. you know what I mean? Constantly looking for that shirt that's hidden like a black man in the middle of the night in the dark, you know what I mean? Because it's easy to like, I mean, I have female friends. You know what I mean. And we all put time, like, but that's not what misogyny is deeper than that. You know what I mean. And we can go on forever. But that's what I just want to add it.
1: Briefly, all I would add is um, Malcolm was once asked do you consider yourself militant, and he said, "I consider myself Malcolm." So all of the uh, profound lessons we take from life, I think, the lesson of self-definition is very important. So it's easy to look from outside of Islam or outside of hip-hop and describe those uh, experiences as misogynistic. I do think, to kind of just camel back off what the brother was saying, I do think that both members of the hip-hop experience and family owe it to themselves and to that experience to be self-critical, uh, both needs to be the industry and how it perpetuates and underwrites uh, misogyny and underwrites objectification of women and other forms of oppression and aggression. But also in terms of the voters that we all need to kind of look for. And that's really brilliant. I don't and walk, and it's just great. It makes people mad and uncomfortable, but it's really good. And, you know, Everyone up here checking they know it's a good thing. <laughs> uh, But I think Muslims also owe it to Islam to be so critical vis a vis the forms of misogyny and chauvinism and patriarchy that existed in the Muslim experience, and also uh, be critical of certain textual references that are not scripture per se, Quran or Hadith or the Prophet, the statements of scholars historically that were written in a particular socio historical context reflecting times um, that were as dark, if not darker, vis-a-vis misogyny as the time we live in now, and are not reflecting the deeper truths of the tradition, but are reflecting the social historical context those people are writing from, and differentiating between those and the non-negotiables of the tradition. Because it's easy for us to say there is no misogyny in Islam, uh, and, and I would agree with that if we're talking about it as a scriptural tradition. Uh, I would disagree with that. It's like people say there's no racism in Islam. Sure, but there's mad racism in the Muslim community. So it's kind of like you would be at a restaurant talking about the food is whack, you know what I mean? And then you're like, oh, it's just a bad waiter. And then you come back again, and then like the food is like, oh, it's the cook. Eventually like, yo, there's something wrong with the restaurant. So we have to be able to say, like, if the cook is doing something wrong, you need to do something about the cook because he's breaking down the name of the restaurant. You can say all day long, like, don't look at Muslims, just look at Islam. It's like, dude, you represent that thing. You're claiming that thing. So if you're claiming it, you better embody it, and you better challenge yourself in it. Because otherwise, how do people differentiate? Dude, you're the person serving me this food at this restaurant. I forgot the name of the restaurant, but all I know is this experience. So I think that we owe it, as members of those communities, or whatever communities we are part of challenge ourselves and to challenge the collectors that we represent and to not be passive because it is, there are difficult conversations that need to be had and those are perhaps the ugliest kind of boogers. You know. uh, no more booger <laughs> yeah. so, uh Yes, please.
0: It's actually a
3: different uh it's a different kind of topic I just want to put out there. Who all, because um, we're about to wrap it up around we Okay. Um, we're, who all knows that Malcolm X had a grandson? Okay, so Malcolm Shabazz, please look up his story. He was murdered suspiciously in Mexico. Um, it's absolutely something. You know what I mean? So his grandfather was murdered. He was murdered. He talked about... How the media works on assassinating your character before they actually go in for the kill. And when you um, do your research on Malcolm X's grandson, you will see that example that he was speaking about. So, just very important to keep his name in the conversation and in all of our prayers because, you know, Malcolm X had a grandson and many of us didn't found out, find out um, until he was killed in Mexico.
0: Does anyone
1: on the panel have any closing reflection? I just want to say thank you to you, and particularly want to thank Sam because I know that I, I'm here by your invitation. Uh, I want to thank you for that. And, uh, all the students who work with you and the folks who work with you, and the folks that you work with, and just for hosting us. Um, such a beautiful city, man, and such a beautiful place and the energy. But particularly, Sam, I want to thank you because this was, in my mind, a personal invitation. And champion you and the sisters and brothers who worked with you to make this moment possible. And thank you, Barbara, as well. Thank you, my uh, uh, esteemed panelists, who allowed me to sit here with you, even though I'm the least amongst you. Uh, and uh, but, you know, and also the worst lyricist. But you know. I
2: got the most brothers. So, um, oh. so, anyways, um, I would, I would just highly, I would highly advise y'all, yo, because you know, somebody in here then not read the book, or didn't Google, or watch the documentary, or whatever. And like, man, you—it's it, not a—you t- know, do it at your own pace. But you, do yourself a favor. Yeah. You will find your own story in the life of Malcolm X. You will. You might be like, ah, wow. You will find it's—it's it's that amazing. So if you haven't taken the time to, you know, read about and read up on it, you know, um, that's all I want to say.
4: That's want to be here. thank you and um, so it's, it's an amazing um, individual the fact that we're still uh, researching him the fact that we're still gathering um, you know in his name to talk about him we're still using him as a as a yardstick by which to measure our own commitment um, to truth and to love and to decolonizing and all that stuff is just really a testament to who he is but also a testament to the community that that birthed and continues to give him
3: Big thank you, Sam, Michaela, all the organizers. You guys really put together a very powerful, impactful program today, yesterday, tonight, inshallah, and also tomorrow, which is going down. So, thank you for all your organizing. I know it takes work, you know, so thank you so much, my panelists. Very honored to be talking with you all about the subjects we covered today. The students, thank you all so much. You look so engaged, too. Thank you, round of applause for yourself. Blessings, thank you for welcoming us to Seattle, the green city, I heard that always rains, but I have got no rain yet, so I don't, know, I don't know. But thank you, blessings, it's been beautiful. Thank you, a lot of
0: Unfortunately, we didn't have time for Q&A, but there's going to be Q&A in the Mitchell's Activity Center at 2 p.m., so there's going to be a break for a couple hours, but that's the Mitchell Activity Center at 2 p.m. I want to thank everybody for giving us their most valuable gift. That's their time and their breaths. Uh, It's customary in our tradition and in many traditions uh, when you're discussing an elder or a teacher or a predecessor or an ancestor or a guide that you... We would say a prayer for them because their soul and their spirit is present. And so we want to close with a Fatiha prayer for Ma'am. Basically we just ask that in the name of the all compassionate, the all merciful, the master of the day of reckoning, the compassionate, the merciful, to be guided to the straight path. And we turn unto the Creator and the Creator is the one that we ask for help. We ask to be amongst those on the straight path, not those who go astray, nor who for a wrap. I um, mean, thank you.